Yes, kiddos, you are dismissed at this time for Children's Church. So let the youngins run along. Um, many of you are keeping up with our Bible reading in the, uh, in the story. And um, uh, so this, the, the scripture reading this morning is one of our favorite Bible stories as a kid, right? The story of God speaking, calling to Samuel, and Sam, or Samuel wakes up and thinks that Eli's calling him. And he goes into Eli and says, hey, you know, what do you need? And finds out that uh, it's actually God uh, speaking directly to him. Uh, so it's, it's a joy to read that passage of Scripture together. Uh, before I dive into our sermon together this morning, let me uh, make you aware of a number of things that we've got on the little table in the back. There are a bunch of different resources uh, that I want to draw your attention to. You know that we started a couple of weeks ago uh, preaching through the book of Exodus. And so in the back there is kind of a, um, a black and white handout that has the chapter content of Exodus. And this is the kind of thing that I think is worth folding in half and sticking in your Bible. And as we work our way through the book of Exodus, you can kind of keep tabs on where we are in the timeline, what's going on, what has happened, and what's getting ready to happen in the book of Exodus. And so there's a, um, that, that's available for you there on the, the counter in the back. And then there's also this uh, colorful uh, handout on the book of Exodus. And this is a, a, an informative overview of the book of Exodus. So it's going to, um, you know, tells you where in the Old Testament it is, how many chapters, what kind of literature it is. And then it divides the book of Exodus up into three main sections there. And this is a helpful little handout, kind of an overview summary of what the book of Exodus is about. There's a bunch of copies on that little table in the back there. Uh, and you're welcome to grab one of those. And then for those of you who are part of our normal family uh, w- weekly attendance, uh, members and regular attenders, we've got a, an updated uh, uh, directory. So you look around the room and you think, I see those people every week, and I say hello to that person every week, and I cannot remember what their name is, Jersey. Forgot your name this morning. Um, well, this, this is meant to help you remember people's names um, and to have there's, uh, their address and uh, contact is on there. And so if you're part of our normal attending family, uh, be sure to grab one of those. It's also an incredibly helpful way to remember to pray for your, your church family. You just take a few names a day or maybe once a week, uh, pray for part of your church family, but feel free to grab one of those there on the back. And then there's also, I'm almost done, um, there's also in the back a, uh, an advertisement or a card for our annual pastor's conference that's going to be coming up a week from tomorrow. Even I can't believe it's already here. So next Sunday morning, Pastor Scott Artavanis, who was our pastor in California, we were in California for two years. The first year, <clears throat> the church was in transition, and then the second year, Scott Artavanis came as the lead pastor of Grace Church of the Valley. Scott's going to be preaching for us next Sunday morning, and then he's going to be speaking on Monday to the pastor's conference here, and uh, wanted to make you, first of all, aware that Scott's going to be preaching to us next Sunday morning, um, and then also that uh, you are all invited to be part of our pastor's conference. Now, we call it a pastor's conference because it is its intention is focused on pastors, but anyone is welcome to come, and there are a number of you from Liberty who come every year to be part of that. You, we, we'd love to know that you're coming. If you would do this, uh, on our church website, there's a, a link, and you can click on it and register. If you would just let us know that you're coming, 
If you're part of our church family, you don't have to pay anything. I think we're asking other people to donate 25 bucks to come because we provide them with a bunch of books, and Danny Thompson's going to be grilling for us that day. So we just need to know how many people to prep for. So if you could register for that, you're welcome. You're, you're, and, and some of you have even gotten tapped on the shoulder like, hey, I really would love to have you here for this. So if you minister in any way or you think you might be ministering someday in the future or you just want to kind of come and see what it's all about, there's be great worship, great preaching. Uh, we have a, a wonderful time. We have 50 to 60 men from around the panhandle who show up for this every year and are, and are encouraged and strengthened by uh, this ministry. And really, it's a ministry, it's, it's your ministry to these men. It's a ministry of Liberty Baptist Church. And so I would, uh, if there's any way you can come, and even if you are only able to come for part of that day, let me encourage you, if you've got an hour or two free in the morning or in the afternoon, drop in and come and be part of, uh, of that day together here. Now, um, Jay McMorris, do you have a copy of my notes back there, a, a physical print copy? Could you please bring them to me? Um, I, my iPad is just circling and circling and circling, and I could pull it up on my phone, but I don't want to do that. Um, this is one of the, the, the joys of technology is also the curse of technology. So um, I've, my preaching notes are not available to me this morning. You do have them back there? Okay, cool. Yeah, if you could gather those up and bring those. And while he's doing that, if you would take your Bibles now and open them to the book of Exodus. I see some guests with us this morning. We're really glad that you're here with us. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the primary preaching pastor, and uh, I'm glad to have, thank you, bro. Glad to have you all with us this morning. And in just a moment, we're going to be opening God's Word and reading through it uh, together, working through it together. We started uh, a series just a couple of weeks ago on the book of Exodus. And I hope that you are finding the book of Exodus to be um, as interesting and relevant as I am. Um, I, I must say that even when I selected the book of Exodus, I thought, man, I know there's some wonderful themes in there, and I know it's something that would serve our church family well, but even as I have begun to really dive into the book of Exodus, I have been thrilled with what we're discovering and what we're learning there. And so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pray here in just a moment and read through our passage here in just a moment. But let me, let me ask you this. Do you ever feel like you don't fit in. Teenager, mom, husband, kid, adult, do you ever feel like you just like you're just kind of out of place in this world? Do you ever feel like you're in the wrong place or maybe the wrong you were you're just in the wrong time period? Oh, if I'd have been born 100 years ago, if I'd have been born through, I, I don't know many people who like wish they were born hundreds of years ago, but you know, maybe, maybe just 50 years ago I was more comfortable than I am today, whatever. Do you feel like you're in the wrong place? Do you, do you ever think that everyone else has an easier time doing life than I do, right? Like uh, other husbands have to have it easier. Uh, other teenagers obviously have it easier than I do. Or it's not even that, like, they're circ it's just that, like, man, life feels hard for me. And on the outside, I know I come off pretty competent. But, man, on the inside, uh, not so much. Do you ever feel like your gifts or your talents, your strengths aren't being used 
or they're just not appreciated. Like, people don't see how awesome you are. Like, you know it. Your spouse doesn't know it. Your friends don't know it. Your employer sure doesn't know it. Do you ever feel like you have wasted years of your life? Maybe that you have wasted and it's your fault and you feel that about you. You think, I, I wasted them and I know I wasted them. Or maybe you feel like someone else has wasted them. Like, Jeremy, these years in my life are wasted years, but it's someone else's fault. But either way, you kind of look at your life like, man, or, or you may even feel this, if you're really honest with yourself, you may think, I'm in it now. Like, I, I'm in the year, I, like, I feel like I'm, these years are just being wasted. Well, let me, let me let you know that there are many, many more people in this room this morning feeling these ways and who would answer yes to these questions than you would possibly imagine. You may be sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm like, I'm the only one thinking and feeling this way. I'm sure, like, you know, Jeremy's using these questions, but he's, he's got me in mind. No, brothers and sisters. There is hope for those of us who feel like sojourners. Jump down to verse 22 of chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, verse 22. Zipporah, Moses' wife, gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. You know what Gershom means? It means sojourner. You know what sojourner means? It means I'm keenly aware that I don't belong here. I feel out of place. This world is not my home. For Moses, he's looking around in the the land of Midian. We're going to get to all this in just a minute. And he goes, yeah, no. I, I feel like I don't fit in. This is Moses speaking here. The questions that I just asked you, I'm going to put them on in Moses' mouth. I don't fit in. I'm in Midian. I, I'm an I'm a Israelite, well, or am I a G- Egyptian? I, am I Hebrew or Egyptian? I, I grew up in Egypt in Pharaoh's ha- I'm Egyptian. I, no, no, I'm, I'm a Hebrew. Well, I'm in either of those places. I'm in Midian. I'm a sojourner. I'm in the wrong place. And other people seem to have an easier time doing life than I do. My gifts, my strengths are not appreciated. And we're going to find out that's exactly what Moses is thinking while he's here in Midian. I am a strong, capable person, and they were not appreci- my gifts were not appreciated in Egypt. And after a year or two, or three, or 10, or 20, or 30, or 40 years in Midian, Moses says, I'm, I'm like wasting my life. I thought I was going to be the deliverer of God's people, and I've spent 40 years working for Jethro, right? great name, right? because we all immediately think of the Beverly Hillbillies and Jethro. I'm working for Jethro. Now, Moses didn't have that Jethro to to think of, but we do. I'm working for Jethro, taking care of sheep, 
in this desert area that is not my home. What a waste of life. Brothers and sisters, the main point of this passage this morning is this, and God, would you please use this to breathe hope into my brothers and sisters. Here's the main point. God doesn't waste wasted years. God does not waste wasted years. God does not waste wasted years whether you are the one who wasted them or someone else wasted them for you. God doesn't waste wasted years. Now, Father, would you please use your word this morning? I'm excited about it. I'm eager to share it. I'm prepared to share it. But, Lord, unless you come and and turn the lights on for us this morning, I'm just going to talk for a little while and we'll all leave unchanged. But, Spirit of God, if you would please come and take the words of your word and and. Uh, light them on fire in our hearts and minds so that we see them and so that we believe them. God, would you change us with them? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So now I'll read the passage, Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Now, a little context, right? Moses has been rescued from the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter, and uh, Pharaoh's daughter contracts with Moses' mother so that she'll take care of Moses for Pharaoh's daughter. And, and Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7, this is 40 years later. I'm 43, okay, so imagine about that length of time. One day. When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Notice the phrase, his people, is used twice. Moses, as a 40-year-old who grew up Egyptian, looks at the Hebrews, and he says, I'm identifying with them. He looked... He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And the man in the wrong answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. The thing that I did is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, a well in those days would would have been a high-traffic area. Roads would have led to it, people coming and going, right? So, I don't, maybe an equivalent would be like a coffee shop in our day, right? Like, people are coming and going. It's a place where people, where people are going to be. Sits down at a well. Now, the priest of Midian this is Jethro, or I think uh, this passage uses the word Raul. He's, the Bible has a couple different names for him. The priest of Midian, 
um, had seven daughters, right? So immediately you're thinking seven brides for seven brothers. Had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. So here are these shepherdesses, these girl shepherds, come to take care of their sheep, and the shepherds wait until they get the troughs all filled up, and then they kick the ladies and their sheep out and bring their sheep to come and water. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian. Right, So they look at Moses, and they identify him as an Egyptian. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Right, So think with me for a second. Raul, seven daughters, they all come home, and they're saying, there was this man at the well. He was big and strong, and he rescued us. And now Raul is thinking, look at verse 20. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why, why have you left him? Call him that he may eat bread. What is Raul thinking? Husband, I got seven daughters. And this dude comes in and rescues them, and they're all coming home all chatty about the handsome, strong guy from Egypt. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This morning, we're going to look at this passage under two headings. First, we're going to look at Moses' strength, and then we're going to look at Moses' schooling. Moses' strength, and then Moses' schooling. The title of the sermon this morning is this, Desert School. Moses goes to desert school in this passage this morning, and he learns some incredibly important things, and he learns some things that, brothers and sisters, you and I need to learn if we're going to make life work, if life is going to work for us. In this passage, we find, in verse 11, we find Moses, and he's 40 years old. We skip basically his entire young uh, you know, uh, childhood and young adulthood and even you know, adulthood, and when we find him, he's 40 years old. And this dude is strong and impressive. And we're going to see that the Bible even makes it very clear that um, he is physically and mentally a force to be reckoned with. He's the guy who walks into the room and you notice, right? Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. He walks in and you, you, like, you can't help but see, okay, this guy's different than me. And I feel a little bit intimidated by him. This, this is Moses. And first, as we look at Moses' strength, in verses 11 and 12, we actually see the heart of Moses, and we're encouraged with what we see in the heart of Moses. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to look at two other passages a number of times this morning, and probably even a couple of other times um, as we continue in the book of Exodus, because they're so important for us understanding what God wants us to understand in the book of Exodus. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Keep, your, keep some kind of a mark there in Exodus 2. We're going to come back to that. And you know that I don't, I don't flip around. We don't flip around a lot in the Bible um, because I, want, I always want the, that primary text to be the main thing that we're learning. But there are a couple of other passages in the New Testament that um, just speak directly to 
this passage. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, it says this, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So the New Testament is, is shining a light on what's happening here in these first uh, uh, few verses that we're looking at together this morning in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 11. Hebrews is making it clear that Moses grows up in the palace with great wealth. He, he, has, he has all of the, uh, the things that the human soul wants. What, what do we want? We want power. We want comfort, right? Like the, these are the things that we, we, our hearts want. And Moses grows up, to the very best of our knowledge, having all of these things. And friends, if, if, if I had, we, we might look at the story of Moses and think, well, of course, like he's going to identify with God's people because we know the story and he's going to try to rescue God's people. But put yourself in those shoes. And I have a feeling that I might have thought thoughts more like this. I am perfectly positioned to help God's people as the insider. Right? Like I'll I'll keep my comfort and I'll keep my wealth, I'll keep my proximity to the throne. I mean, who can help the Israelites more than someone who's on the inside? I don't want to risk my relationship with Pharaoh. I don't want to risk my risk my relationship with Egypt. And so I'm not really going to identify with the Israelites, but I can as an insider, I can kind of help them. Moses has none of that. Moses makes it clear that he is going to identify with God's people and he's going to seek to, to reach out and to help them. And so one day, as he's looking upon their burdens, and he, he sees an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew. And it seems in this story that this happens very quickly, that he sees the mistreatment of one of his people and his heart burns with righteous indignation. He thinks, no, not on my watch. That's not happening. This is one of my people. And this uh, slave, uh, this taskmaster is being oppressive, and I'm going to make the, I'm going to set the record straight. I'm going to make the wrongs right. I'm going to take justice into my own hands. And and we know, we we know from the beginning that Moses knows what he's doing is wrong, because he does the same thing you and I do when we're getting ready to do something is wrong. That's something that's wrong. We look this way and that, right? Looking over our shoulder, make sure no one's watching before we look at the bad thing on the internet before we make the bad phone call, before we make the wrong decision, before we do the thing that we know we shouldn't be doing, we, we do. We literally, like, it, you know what this look means. Right? You, like, we all understand what it means to look this way and that. And Moses looks this way and that before he does this wrong. Moses, who was brought up with incredible wealth and incredible privilege, he, but he knows his roots and he chooses to identify with God's people. And Acts 7, 22 says this, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses was a man whose deeds were powerful and his words were powerful. So like I said, here's a guy who when he walks into a room, people notice him. He's wise and he's strong, and he seems to be acting out of a heart that was righteous and compassionate. So he sees one of his fellow 
Hebrews being mistreated, and he thinks, this is not okay, I'm going to do something about it. And it, his heart of compassion, we could say it, it's, it's probably something that Moses even learned, right? The Bible describes his mother having a heart of compassion and putting him in the Nile, and his stepmother having a heart of compassion and pulling him out of the Nile. And so Moses is raised in large part by these two women, and he has this same heart of compassion for people that are being mistreated. And so Moses wants to do the right thing, but Moses does the wrong thing. He tried to do the right thing, but he did it the wrong way. And brothers and sisters, you know this to be true, that it's never right to do wrong to do right. Have you heard that phrase before? It's never, it's never right to do the wrong thing in order to get a chance to do right. Or it's never right to do wrong thinking that it's going to be right. True character is doing the right thing even when no one is watching you. What do you do when no one is watching you? That's who you really are. And for most of us, you want me to hurry on to the next part of the sermon. Don't, let's not spend too much time there thinking about that. But we, need, we do need to push pause on that for just a second and realize that the, the youest you is the you when no one else is around. Because it's pretty easy to kind of uh, act and display and project, right? We do it on Facebook, but we do it in real life as well, right? We, you know, on our social media accounts, we portray that we are this kind of person. And in real life, we tend to do that as well. But you know the youest you. You know who you are when no one else is around and when no one else is watching. And Moses, when no one else is watching, is a murderer. Moses is someone who takes matters into his own hand, matters that weren't his to take into his own hand, and, 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 and murders a guy and buries him in the sand, which is not a particularly great game plan, but Moses, similar to living around here, he has to work with what he's got to work with. You know, he's got flat sand. That's what he's got to work with. Um, and just so you know, um, I've got paper notes here in front of me, and I usually preach from an iPad, and I just put my finger and scrolled up on my paper, trying to move my notes forward. So I thought it was funny. I will probably do it again before it's all said and done. Moses was wrong. He buries this guy in the sand, and he, he knows he's wrong. And so he goes out the next day, verse 13, when he went out the next day, Two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Now, imagine Moses' perspective. He loves the Hebrews. He wants to identify with the Hebrews. He wants to help the Hebrews. In fact, he wants to help them so much that he killed a guy yesterday in order to try to help them. And so he sees them fighting with each other, and he steps in wanting to help them. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And the response that this guy has to Moses could not have caught Moses more off guard. It could not have been more confrontational what this guy says to Moses. He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Now, my assumption here is that the guy who Moses rescued yesterday is the one who went back and said, the Egyptian taskmaster was whipping the fire out of me. Moses jumped in and killed that guy. And I mean, I'm kind of glad he did it, but man, like Moses is a guy who, like he just, he's a vigilante, right? Like Moses just took matters in his own hand and, and murdered a guy because the guy was beating me. This action on Moses' part was probably part of Moses' personality. Moses knows he, that he's a man who's mighty in words and mighty in deeds. And, and, and we're going to see here in just, well, let's flip over to Acts chapter 7. This was the other passage that we need to look at together. So that Hebrews passage makes it clear that Moses wants to identify with God's people. In Acts chapter 7, interestingly, when Stephen is preaching right before he gets stoned and he's talking through the fathers of the Old Testament, he spends a lot of time talking about Moses. And he, uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 22, says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Notice verse 24 says he defended the oppressed man. So here Moses was stepping in as a defender of the oppressed, right? A Robin Hood sort of character, a lone ranger kind of guy. I'm here, Batman, to, to, to rescue and to save. Verse 25 tells us, what Moses was thinking when he did that. Here's why Moses did that. Here's what he was thinking. You're like, how do we know what he was thinking? Verse 25, he supposed, he thought, that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Moses killed the Egyptian thinking, my Hebrew brothers and sisters are going to see me do this thing and they're going to realize I'm their Savior. See, Moses is doing what you and I do all the time. Instead of trusting God, he's trying to be God. I heard a pastor say that recently. I thought that was really good. We live life one of two ways. You live life one of two ways. You live life trusting God or trying to be Him. And most of us you know, slip back and forth we struggle, God, I want to trust you, but uh, I'm going to kill the Egyptian, right? Like M Moses, instead, he wants what God wants for his people, but instead of trusting God in God's way and God's plan, Moses takes matter into his own hand, and he does this, verse 25 of Acts chapter 7, supposing that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. So when Moses rolls in to the argument between the two Hebrews that day, he expects that they are going to look to him and go, man, we're so glad you're here, O murderer of Egyptians, because we know that you're on our side and we know that you're going to help us work through this thing. It's going to be great. We're, but even Acts chapter 7 ends by saying, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you do wrong to each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. We, we see here that Moses had defended the weak. He had defended the, the, Egypt, uh, the Israelite from the Egyptian. Moses steps in to defend the weak Hebrew from the other Hebrew. He wants to be this defender of the weak. And, and because he had decided that he was going to play God, his plan, his plan to save the Hebrews falls apart and blows up in his face. And in fact, they don't look at him as a savior. They look at him as a vigilante. Friends, you don't build trust in others by doing the wrong thing, thinking it will help you do the right thing, right? So they realized that, no, it's not right that the Egyptians are beating us, but it's not right for you to just go and murder someone. And the Hebrews know that. And when they're looking for someone to be a leader for them, they want someone who has character. They, they, and they realize Moses has proven publicly to us that he is a, not a man of character. He is a man who is willing to look over his shoulder in both directions to make sure no one's watching and then do something that he knows is wrong and then kind of expects us to ignore that and act like um, he's going to be a great leader. This is not the way leadership works. This is not the way God works. And this isn't the way that, it, and, and this ends up just absolutely um, uh, blowing up in Moses' face and causing a great deal of problems for Moses. We do this same sort of thing, though. We do the wrong thing, hoping for a chance often to do right. And we know that people watch us do the wrong thing. And then we're surprised when those people aren't willing to follow us. When you gossip, to someone about something, do you know what that person knows about you? They know that you will gossip about them. Write it down 100% absolute. When, when someone will gossip to you, they will gossip about you. Now, they may be gossiping about something that, you know, pray for this, you know, they, we put pray for so-and-so around it, acting like we're not gossiping, and then we gossip, right? Pray for so-and-so. I heard that such and such was right. Um, when when we um, w- when we know that someone will do wrong, we we don't go to the guy to to lead us. So let let me let me ask you, friend. What about you? If you'll cheat on your taxes, or lie in front of your kids, or break the law you know, for, for whatever reason, for a good reason, you're making it clear to those around you that you'll do wrong. And they'll learn that you'll do wrong to them as well. And, and I think many of us need to give consideration to our own lives and think through, am I the kind of person who does wrong? Uh, yeah, I mean, I know I know the tax code says this. I know the speed limit says this. I know the hunting regulations say this, but no one's going to know. It's not a big deal. It's going to be work out better in the end anyway. And what you're teaching those around you is that you're willing to do wrong. And they remember that. Moses lost credit because he did the wrong thing. Instead of trusting God, he tried to be God. Some of 
you have kids that obey and submit to you now because you're the parent and they live in your house, but they know that you don't deal honestly. I mean, come on. Andy and Opie, right? I just watched the episode recently. Opie lies to his friend to get some roller skates, and Andy rebukes him, and then Andy lies to the, um, the antique dealer to sell the old rusty cannon from the town. Anybody? Anybody tracking? All right, a few of you. He tells the guy that it was a cannon that was used by Teddy Roosevelt on his charge up San Juan Hill while Opie's standing there listening, right? And then later in the show, Opie lies again to get his roller skates, and he says, well, Pa, you did it. Yep. Friends, Moses did the wrong thing trying to accomplish a right goal, and the people that he was trying to help, the people that he was trying to rescue, wanted nothing to do with him. Moses was operating according to his own strength. He was trying to be God rather than trusting God. And you and I do this sort of thing all the time. There are many capable, strong people in here, and we just, by our own strength, decide this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And this must have been an incredibly low day for Moses. I mean, can you imagine? Acts chapter 7 makes it clear that he thought of himself as the rescuer. He thought that he's going to do this thing and the people of Israel are going to kind of rally around him and he's going to deliver them somehow in some way. And Moses, as a 40-year-old, strong, wise person, probably had plans. Right? He probably had his strategy, his to-do list, his networks. I mean, he, he, was, he was no dummy. And so now here in the course of two days, he gets to the end of day number two where his people have said, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses realizes, I'm on a wanted list. I've got to get out of here. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Now, if you have one of those, bi- uh, those maps in the back of your Bible, you can look at this real quick. It's kinda, it kind of shows you uh, where we're talking about here. So uh, in the back of my Bible, there's a little map that's called the Route of the Exodus. And you can see over on the left-hand side, you may not have the exact same map. You may not even have a map. That's okay. But over on the left-hand side is Egypt, and then the triangular-shaped peninsula is the Sinai Peninsula. And then over on the right side, beyond the Sinai Peninsula, uh, there's the Gulf of Aqaba there on the western side. To the west of that is the area called Midian. So Moses picks up, and he takes off hundreds of miles and goes to the land of Midian. Moses... Born a Hebrew, raised an Egyptian, identifying as a Hebrew, runs to the land of Midian, which is neither Hebrew nor Egyptian. There are, they are descendants of Abraham, but not the, the, people, the direct uh, lineage of the, the people of God um, here, like the Israelites here in Egypt. This is a low day for Moses. We find him sitting at a well. It seems as though Moses wanted to do right, but now, now he's on the run. His strength was insufficient. As he tried to be God, it didn't work. Instead of trusting God, he tried to be God, and it didn't work for him. Moses probably thought, I'm perfectly poised to be the one who can provide for relief for my people. And now I'm in Midian, sitting next to a well, having been rejected by the people that I wanted to rescue and save. And the reason Moses is in Midian brings us to point number two. 
Because God had schooling for Moses. God had schooling for Moses. Now, we use the word school in lots of different ways, right? You go to school or somebody got schooled, right? Here, it's really kind of more like this, like God is schooling <laughs> Moses. Moses goes to a foreign land and sits down. And I'm, I'm just guessing here at the end of verse 15, that this is a low point for Moses, and he sat down by a well. This appears to be a man without a plan, a man who has always had a plan, a man who has always been strong, a man who had it together. He has been well-educated. He is physically and mentally at the top of his game, and he finds himself sitting at a well, and it appears as though he's sitting at a well, and he's got no plan. Like, I'm not sure what my next move is. He wasn't thinking, hey, this is a great place to pick up women. I'll wait until the daughters of, Zippor, uh, of Rill come, and then, you know, I, I, I'm sure something good will, will work out. Right? I mean, I, I just kind of imagine him sitting with his back against a well, straight legs in front of him, with it kind of a glazed, dazed look, probably dusty and dirty. And it's interesting to me that even here in this foreign land, Moses is acting in a way where he defends the weak. Moses is not this entirely wicked, horrible person. He's like you and me. He, he wants to do right. He does the wrong thing. He, sometimes he does the right thing. A lot of times he does the wrong thing. And here these shepherdesses, the daughters of Rule, show up, the priest of Midian. And they came to draw water, and they filled the troughs to water their, their flocks. But the shepherds come in and drive away the shepherdesses. Moses is like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Hold on. They were here first. They filled up the water troughs. And Moses is apparently of such strength that, I mean, there's at least two other shepherds because it's used plural, but there were probably several other shepherds. And the other shepherds back down to the one man, Moses. Moses stands up and you can almost see him, right? Like thick chested. And he's like, no, 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 guys. And I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't know any of these people, but he knows what's right. And he stands up and says, no, stop, ladies, we're here first. They're going to get, and then he even helps those ladies draw water and, and, and water their, their flock there. Because those girls get home early and go to their dad, and, and dad's like, wait a second, man, how'd you, that was fast. How did you water the flock so quickly? And of course, they tell the story about this Egyptian man that was there, and, and Raul, um, you know, we, we laughingly, but I actually think there's probably a lot of truth to like, yeah, he was like, hey, go find that guy and bring him here. We're going to show him some hospitality. Who knows what might come from this relationship? And Moses goes, Moses goes to um, what is it? Foreign foreign exchange. He's a foreign exchange student. Now there's no exchange happening here, but Moses goes to school in a foreign land, and he doesn't even know he's going to school. Here, Moses begins the schooling that God has for him. He he. Um, he gets married, he starts a family, and he names his son something that gets our attention. He names his son Sojourner. Moses is saying, I, I don't belong here. Now, we know the rest of the story, but Moses doesn't know the rest of the story. Moses doesn't know that after 40 years of growing up in Egypt, he's going to spend 40 years here on what we call the backside of the desert, and then he's going to spend 40 years leading the people of God. Moses just knows, I had it, I blew it, and now I'm here, and I don't belong here. 
And that's where he is at this point in this story. I blew my opportunity. I wasted my opportunity. I'm not good at life. I don't belong. I don't like it here. I don't fit here. Some of us know the story. There was a short story written back in the mid-1800s called The Man Without a Country. Anybody familiar with the story about The Man Without a Country? A short story uh, written by Edward Everett Hale. It was published in The Atlantic back in 1863. And it's the story of an American Army lieutenant, Philip Nolan. It's a fiction story who renounces his country during his trial for treason, and he's sentenced to spend the rest of his days at sea with no information whatsoever that's allowed to come to him about America. And so it unfolds this story of this man who was once an American citizen, and his his citizenship is revoked, and so his punishment is to he's put on a ship, um, and he is never allowed in port anywhere else again. He lives the rest of his life as a man without a country, and it describes the psychological hardship and, and fear and anxiety that he has as being a man without a country, a man without a place. And, and I think that illustration kind of helps us understand where Moses is at this time. He's in a place, but he knows that the place he's in doesn't fit right. It's not where he belongs. And brothers and sisters, those of us who know that our our primary and most important identity is a child of God and that our real life is the one that's to come and we know that we'll spend eternity. Our real life is the life that's going to be lived in eternity with with God and the new heavens and new earth. We often feel this way here and now. Even though we're at home, it doesn't feel like home. And like we, we are desperate to feel that. I want to live close to my kids. I want to live close to my kin. I want to live in the house that my grandparents grew up in. Like I, and I want my great-grandkids to live in the same house that my great-grandparents lived. Like, home, like I want it to feel like home. I want to feel like I belong. And yet you know you don't feel that way. The desire to feel that way has been put in you by God. You are longing for home. You are longing for perfect relationship with the Father. Our relationship with fathers are, is a mixed bag. Some have great relationships, some have no relationships, some have terrible relationships. Our, our relationship with our family is a mixed bag, right? Our greatest joys and our greatest heartaches come from the people that are closest to us. Our, our longing for land, like literal earth, our longing to have a house that's made out of bricks and mortar and wood, on a piece of dirt that is ours, those those are feelings. Those are desires that God has put in us. We are made for real life on a real planet, in a real place, in a home. And that will only be ultimately fulfilled in relationship with God and His people forever. That's why we years ago we spent uh, we did a series um, describing what eternity will be like. Eternity is not some kind of angelic floaty around in clouds with gold. Like the new heavens and new earth are described in terms that are thrilling. That that God will rework this planet. You will live on this earth. You will be God's people in God's place in God's presence, and your longing for a perfect relationship with the Father will be found then. And your relationship for a perfect people to live with will be found then. And your desire to have physical house 
on a physical piece of dirt with plants and all, like all the kinds of stuff that we desire, like it will come. And, and we, we see shadows of that now, and it's right for us to cultivate those things now. It's normal and appropriate for you to buy a piece of land and build a house on it. Like that's a human and proper thing to do. But you know that even the day that that house is done being built and you walk in, you are aware. I just, like I thought it was going to be more than this. Well, here Moses is sojourning. None of that was in my notes, but I think the Lord wanted me to share it. God is bringing Moses to the desert to learn. Now, when we hear the word desert, we tend to think of it in terms uh, that we think of, that like the desert is just something that's incredibly undesirable. The desert is the bad place. I don't want to go to the desert. But throughout Jewish and, and uh, Hebrew culture and the scriptures, the desert is the place where God brings his people so that he can meet with them. God often brings his people out into the desert so that he can meet with them in a unique and a special way. We're going to see that that's what God does with Israel, right? When he delivers them from Egypt, the first thing he does is brings them out into the desert to Sinai where he's going to meet with them in this incredibly hostile, um, difficult environment. But it's a place where he's going to show himself to them. And this is what God does with Moses. He brings him to this desert land of Midian, a place that he doesn't belong. And God begins to show himself to Moses. And we're going to see it even, even much more poignantly next week. God literally shows up to Moses in the burning bush. The, the experience that Moses has with the burning bush is one of the most significant moments in all of human history. Certainly one of the most significant moments in the book of Exodus. But God brought Moses out into this desert and, and shows Moses his incredible inability and then shows Moses who he is. But that's a sermon that's getting ready to come a couple weeks from now. God, God brings Moses out into the desert and he brings Moses into a desert for 40 years. And we live life with this kind of panic, like if I don't hurry up and get this stuff done, it's never going to get done. And God, you dare not waste an hour of my day because I've got plans and I've got things to, to do. And when we feel like we're wasting our lives, brothers and sisters, often that is God doing his deep and needed work in our lives. And God's not worried about days and months and hours and weeks. God's going to do his work in your life. And if it needs 40 years, like he's not, he's not going, oh man, it's going to take 40 years to get them straightened out. He, he, God will use the time that he wants to use to get his work done. And as you think about God, the people that God used in the scriptures, they often went through periods or experiences that were extremely difficult and extremely trying. God doesn't waste wasted years. Before God used Moses to get the people of Israel out of Egypt, God brought Moses into Midian to get the Egypt out of Moses. Let me say that again. Before God used Moses to get the people of Israel out of Egypt, God wanted to get the Egypt out of Moses. See, in Egypt, your strength um, is what accomplished things, and the Pharaoh actually thought of himself as God, right? He was trying to be God rather than trusting God. And this is exactly Moses, who had been brought up in the Egyptian way of living and the Egyptian way of thinking. Moses was trying to be God rather than trusting God. And God did want to use Moses 
as the human element to deliver God's people. But before God used Moses to deliver the Hebrews out of Egypt, God wanted to deliver the Egypt out of Moses. And friends, so often that is what God is doing in your life and in my life. God wanted to humble Moses, to show Moses, it is not your wisdom, it is not your physical strength that I'm going to use to accomplish my thing. In fact, I'm going to humble you. In fact, I'm going to humiliate you. And we sometimes think that God wouldn't humiliate us. But often, the thing that God uses to bring humility into our lives comes to us through humiliation, where we are trying to be God, and God says, nope, I'm not going to let that happen. In fact, I'm going to show you very clearly that you can't do this, and only I can do this. And God will bring us to some type of Midian-like experience where we find ourselves sitting in a well going, I thought I was good at this, and I'm not. I thought I was ready to serve the Lord. I thought I was ready for whatever, and clearly I'm not. God has me on the backside of the desert. God has me in the wilderness wandering for 40 years. When I was a young man, I had a heart for God, but I had a bigger heart for myself. Um, and um, I was in school. I was studying pastoral studies. I, I wanted the Lord to use me, but I was proud and arrogant. I was vain. Between my sophomore year and my junior year, I sat out of school for a year. I was sharing this story with Mark and Paula last night um, over dinner. Um, I, I, sat out of, I sat out of school for a year, and I, I was trying to make some money. I, I was running out of money and uh, was trying to make a little money before the next school year. So I decided to work at a Christian camp for a year. It was a terrible way to make money. Um. God's plan, though, had nothing to do with money. What God had for me was 15 months of pulling me out of what I thought I was supposed to be doing to serve God, to get my things, to get God's things done. And God pulled me out of that craziness for 15 months, and God hammered away at me. And for almost every day for 15 months, there was a man in my life named Mac Lynch, and Mac discipled me almost every single day for 400 plus days. And we would read the Bible together and he would ask me you know, how I was doing in my Bible reading and in my thought life and those sorts of things. And we would memorize scripture together and we would go running together and we would lift weights together and we did a lot of different things together. And what I thought was God pulling me out of school and I guess I need to make some money was God pulling me out. Now, it, 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 I wouldn't say that it was a, it, it wasn't a, um, an experience like uh, Moses's where I'm sitting at a well thinking, what? but it was a desert time in this sense. God pulled me out of what I thought I was supposed to be doing. Because when you're 19, a year delay is like, that's a huge chunk of your life at that point. Like I got to sit out of school for a year and college is already going to take four years and I'm, I'm taking another year out of my life. But what God was doing, he was pulling me into a spiritual desert. And by desert, I don't mean that they're like, a spiritual, a place for him to meet with me. And God worked me over. And my wife knew me, we weren't married yet, but knew me before that 15-month desert and after that 15-month desert. And she would say that there's a mar- there was a marked difference in the kind of person that I was because God pulled me out of my plans and my strength and my way of doing things 
and sat me down in the school, uh, in desert school for a year. God profoundly affected my heart and my life during that time, and I'm thankful now for a wasted year. It wasn't a wasted year. God doesn't waste wasted years. God doesn't waste anything. You might think, yeah, Jeremy, but it's different because my wasted years are because of sin. Moses' wasted years were because of sin. But they weren't wasted years. I I remember hearing a story of um, a man who had gotten saved later in life and He'd come forward, I think, during an evangelistic thing, and, and, and as he was repenting and professing Christ as his Savior, he cried out, you know, oh, the wasted years. Oh, I've wasted so many years. I've wasted my life. Then here's what's interesting. The story of that man has been told over and over and over and over again. So even his testimony of wasted years is being used by God to shake up people and get the attention of others like me who hear that testimony and think, God, I don't want to waste my life because it's my fault. Lord, if you're going to take me to the desert, then so be it. There's no such thing as wasted years in God's playbook for those who will submit themselves to him. God will teach us in ways and in the amount of time that he wants to. Moses was trying to do what so many of us do. He was trying to be God rather than trust God. Possibly because he didn't really know God. And what we're going to read in the weeks to come, this burning bush illustration, Moses is going to, he is going to see who God is. Because it's interesting, when, yeah, I'll preach on this again. When Moses has the burning bush experience, At the end of that, and God says, okay, now I'm ready to use you to go rescue my people. What's Moses' response then? He goes, no, no no way, I can't do. The guy who 40 years earlier went, walked in thinking, I'm here to rescue my people. 40 years later, after he has learned and he has seen who God is, God says, okay, now, now. Now I'm ready to use you. And Moses goes, no way. Because Moses has seen who he is and he has seen who God is. And now, now this humble, God-dependent man is useful to God. Moses uh, was doing what so many of us do. He was trying to be God rather than trust God. And so we see that Moses' schooling taught him that only God is sufficient. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness of Midian. That's a long time. And he didn't know the timeline. He didn't know, okay, I'm at 38 years. i got two more to go. When Moses went back to Egypt, he spent the rest of his life, uh, excuse me, Moses was sojourning in the house of Pharaoh as a young man. Moses is sojourning here in Midian. And when Moses goes and delivers the Hebrews from Egypt, he's sojourning as well. Moses spends his life, his entire life, 100 and. 20 years of his life, because he spends 40 years in the desert, 120 years of his life he spends sojourning. Moses never lives his life feeling like I'm at home now. I'm in my place. Life is comfortable. But he has since then and will forever in eternity be God's person in God's place in God's presence. 
In desert school, Moses learns these things. In desert school, Moses learns how to care for people. He starts a family. Is he going to need to know how to care for people in the, as he delivers the people of Israel? Yes. He learns how to care for sheep. I think Moses probably even learns about how to live in a desert as he's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. He learns who God is, and he learns that God is a God that he can trust Instead of his being God, he can learn to trust God. And now let's look in closing. We're going to hit these verses again when we um, jump into Exodus. Uh, I guess it'll be two weeks from now because I'm not preaching next week. But just look in verses 23 through 25 real quickly. Because though God is going to use Moses, he's making it abundantly clear Moses is not the hero of the book of Exodus. Verse 23, those, during those many Days, many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Oh, look at these two next two verses, and look at, look at how God responds. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There is a hero. He's rescuing Moses from himself. He's getting ready to rescue the people of Israel from Egypt, and he is the one who rescues us. Look in verses 23 through 25, uh, 23, um, and it describes our experience before we come to know Christ as our Savior. We groan under the slavery of sin, under the slavery of Satan. And we, how can we be saved? We cry out for help. But to whom? We cry out for help to the one true God. And what happens when those who turn from their sins and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? What happens? God hears your groaning. And he remembers the promises that he has made to his people. He sees you and he knows you. And he will, just like he's getting ready to do, with the Israelites, he will rescue you from your slavery. These are the things that God is teaching Moses. These are the things that God will teach Israel. And brothers and sisters, these are the things that God must teach us. And so if God has you in school right now, if God has you in the desert right now, he is not wasting wasted years. You think you're spinning your wheels, you're not spinning your wheels. Brothers and sisters, humble yourself before God. Ask the Lord to teach you what he wants you to know and know that he is the deliverer. He will, he, anytime God's doing one thing, he's doing a hundred things. He's doing a thousand things. And so as he's doing something in your life, he's doing something in your family's life and he's doing something in your church's life and he's doing something in your community's life. God doesn't waste wasted years. You and I, brothers and sisters, we are, we are sojourners and we will feel like sojourners every day of our earthly existence. But there's coming a day where we will be in the promised land. We look forward to the day where we'll be God's people in God's place in God's presence. So brothers and sisters, trust God. Don't try to be God. Trust him. Trust him as your savior and trust him every day of your sojourning. Bow your heads, please. Now and close your eyes. We're going to Take just a moment, and I'm going to let you pray, and then I will uh, invite the, in fact, music team, if you would come, please, and for those of you who God has worked in your heart this morning, and you realize that maybe you have felt like you're in wasted years, God doesn't waste wasted years, no such thing. 
How would God want you to take those years that you maybe think have been wasted and now use them to advance his kingdom for his glory, to help other sojourners along the way? If you need to pray and ask God uh, to forgive you of sin or to help drive these truths home to your heart, I'll give you just a moment to do that. Father, we foolishly think that we're strong. I do. Forgive us. Please, please teach us. Please bring us to the desert to meet with you and then teach us who you are and who we are in light of who you are. Father, I pray that we would be good pupils in your desert school. Forgive us for trying to be God and teach us to trust in you for our salvation. Yes, it's first and foremost, but teach us to trust in you every day of our sojourning here. Help us to do your will in your way. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. We'll sing together a song that I think is a very fitting conclusion to this.